Hello, hello, listeners to the Third Way podcast. Um, so I think we all, everyone we meet, we meet for a reason. Um, and sometimes it seems like a tough lesson, and sometimes it's just awesome. And I love randomness of connections. I love the the complexity of, of how we are all interconnected as humans. And when several people are vibrating kind of at the same frequency, it seems inevitable that their paths would cross. And such is the case today with my guest, Rachel Fell. And Rachel has an interesting challenge that I think a lot of listeners to this podcast um, have, which is that a single label or two words for what you do is very, very restrictive. Um, But at a simple level, Rachel is a coach and leadership development person. Um, But because she's a polymath and because she is multidimensionality, she generally works with people that are also considered multidimensional, maybe related to neurodiversity, maybe related to business ventures, maybe related to their desire to go explore the edge of everything. And um, I would describe Rachel as a uh, a, a co-adventurer in the journey to being a better leader. Uh, So welcome, Rachel. Thanks, Justin. That's very kind of you. Well, it was all true. So. <laughs> I know so, you don't seem like the kind of guy to just kind of say things for the sake of uh, saying. I, I, wish, <laughs> I used to be a much better bullshitter than I am now. So, uh, you know, <laughs> there's some sort of ratio of elevated consciousness to reduction of bullshit. Maybe that's yeah. the, the, a, a new white paper. Um, <laughs> so, uh, I wanted to, after we had a couple of visits, I think I, I was like immediately, I think I messaged you immediately after our first visit. I'm like, I want you on my podcast, which is, you know, to me, that's a high compliment because I don't want, I don't want to invite just anybody on. And uh, it's a high compliment to that you wanted to be on is what I mean. Um, So the topic is um, this idea of intelligence and It's not intelligence in the way that we would necessarily even talk about intelligence, but more around the idea of redefining intelligence as a term. So that's what we're going to dig into today. Um, So how's that sound? Love that. Really excited about it. I'm game to unlearn, parse, play around, redefine, explore, all that good stuff. That's what we do here. Mm-hmm. So let's start off with a very light question. What is the relationship between philosophy and intelligence? <laughs> <laughs> just, yeah, just your average, you know, right. running mill sort of yeah, small talk. Like, yes, no. around the barbecue or on a weekend. <laughs> right. I guarantee you, though, that you in your circle and me and my circle, we do have those conversations around like beer and barbecue and yeah oh my god the other night I was out and ran into a friend and immediately he just like launched into that space it's like he knows I'm somebody that can go right there and like generally wants to go right there so yeah yeah, you know it's funny right I I reflect a lot on how you know philosophy and material reduction like thinking about how philosophy is oftentimes reduced into isms and sort of like, you know, the, the, you know, old dead white dude who came up with this sort of way of thinking, but, you know, even redefining philosophy to be more about the exploration of the nature of things. Mm -hmm. For a while, I was calling myself an existential coach and I still kind of do because sometimes with certain, certain clients, because, you know, to me, philosophy seems like one of the most pragmatic and important 
uh, places and spaces to spend time as a human being. So what is the nature of something? What's the nature of reality or how we know what we know? And so, you know, even the idea of like, what is the nature of intelligence feels like a really good place to start. Um, mm -hmm. What is my currently held conception of what this means? And how does that factor into, you know, my sort of self-concept, how I view the world, how I view others, how I view values. So this idea of philosophy as a space to just kind of like play and explore, um, maybe start to unlearn, maybe start to rethink, maybe start to just like get curious and, and have some fun with, with the redefinition of this very complex concept. Yeah. So where do you see though, like philosophy and intelligence to me feel like complementary. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I know a, a lot of people, I've met people over the years that are very philosophical, but you wouldn't necessarily say they were intelligent. And little kids are a great example of that, you yeah. know, like that, that out of the mouths of babes and the wisdom of children. Um, I know a lot of people that are sort of intellectually smart that are not philosophical at all. Right. Uh, there's no questioning of, there's no inquiry. There's kind of a rigidity of thought. And so I'm thinking about like, kind of as a follow-up to that is it seems like one almost informs the other. It's almost like a symbiotic relationship. Yeah. Um, and so I'm curious what your reaction to that is of, of these idea, these, these two virtues, if you want to call them that are schools of thought combining. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm taken to the idea of intelligence as noun, mm -hmm. intelligence as verb. So, you know, if you if you play the old sort of like uh, definition and meaning game, uh, we can look at definitions that suggest that intelligence is actually the ability or the capacity to learn. And then the sort of process of that translation of information into something contextual. Mm -hmm. um, and so that would be more of like the verb definition or the mm -hmm. verb way of making meaning of what intelligence is. But in a culture that is very oriented to what and that rigidity is kind of a got a compounding interest in a sort of like a self-propagation, I think that intelligence is oftentimes just there's a shortcut to what this is a smart person. Okay, what does smart mean? But if we really slow down and back up, there's this, this verb aspect, you know, it's like children are curious and they're, you know, engaging the world around them in the, in the pursuit of, you know, I guess, expanded perception, having a relationship with the world, having a relationship with others. So, you know, this gets us right into territory of like, uh, the relationship between information, perception, how we synthesize information, how that becomes intelligence or, you know, our bodies, our bodies are intelligent, you know, your heart beats without it, your conscious thought, you know, you breathe without your conscious thought. So yeah, I'm just taking to that noun verb place a little bit. Yeah. I think it, it seems so too, that if you focus on philosophy, the exploration of ideas or concepts, it will lead you to a, a intelligence, maybe not the way related to like capacity, but more related to depth of knowledge or, or depth of understanding. Um, you know, a, a, a more ancient term for this would be like wisdom versus mm -hmm. knowledge as, you know, and to me, philosophy is more about the wisdom um, mm -hmm. of something and as opposed to knowledge. So um, I also think that there's, and this kind of leads into the second question, but kind of a final thought before that, which is, 
systemically we have a uh, we put it, we put a higher value on intelligence than philosophy, philosophical someone that's philosophical, and I think part of the reason is is that it's dangerous. It's dangerous. It's never dangerous to be intelligent, but it is frequently dangerous to be philosophical, especially within systems. Yes. And and I think that that's where you see so many people gravitate towards data as an example, what I call data worship, you know, um, which is, I'm not against data, but it, it's got a story and the philosophy side of you needs to know what the story of the data is, or it's just a bunch of numbers that are steeped in confirmation bias or something else, you know? Uh, um, and I, it's almost like a twin brain thing. Like you need to work out upper body and lower body, you know, uh, in the, in, in, as a, as a, like a muscularity of, of, of things. So, yeah. um, so I'm thinking of then about what, well, what shapes, um, intelligence, like we would call that, you know, social conditioning. What are some things that are shaping how we view intelligence or how we, um, consider ourselves or others levels of intelligence? Where do, where do some of those ideas come from? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's a great question. And it really is just a super beautiful follow on from what we were just speaking out about. It's a perfect bridge because, you know, this idea of um, philosophy as modifier, you know, mm-hmm. the philosophy of science, the philosophy of, you know, it's like there's there's always this sort of like, what is the context in which this sort of um this exists. And, and so, you know, as humans, we are very, very, you know, mind body split Cartesian divide. We -hmm. have this sort of, um, progressive orientation to form, I think as a species, if you really zoom out and look over time. And so, you know, what we can prove, what we can measure consensus reality and objectivity as, higher order value than what we can't see. You know, Mm -hmm. we're, you know, we're right into the quantum now and there's really beautiful, like, you know, most recently, the most recent Nobel prize awarded to some scientists who basically scientists who proved, proved that, uh, local reality is actually not a real thing. (laughs) So we're right in there with where the form meets the formless to come back to earth a bit. All that to say that I think like we're very, very oriented towards the material as human beings. And so we really like, you know, it's like proving eminence inside of a system that is oriented towards the material. Our version of material success oftentimes has to do with money and wealth. We don't prioritize and value like the way we feel, um, our impact on others. There's so this this orientation towards the sort of um form-based in the material feels like a sort of upstream starting point. And then you can extrapolate all the ways in which that manifests in terms of boxing out of the how is valuable, right? Or the exploration is valuable or the formless is valuable. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that, I mean, social conditioning is, you know, it's, how, it's normal. It's how we, all ma- all mammals do it. Um, really, uh, in their own way. Um, and then we have, you know, the neocortex, and we can, um, and then we start to have almost like a split reality. Um, and where we have the reality of like, what is, um, like I say, nature kills pretense, but we have the ability in our brain, or the way our minds are formed, often as kind of a defense mechanism to craft an entirely different reality. Mm-hmm. And then we start to, you know, this is the allegory of the cave, essentially, going way back. Um, and 
we start to look at that projected reality and then we start to shape other people towards it. Yes. And I had a conversation um, in the driveway a couple of weeks ago or last week with a, somebody that was canvassing for a school, a slate of school board people. And I am critical of this approach of primarily what I would say Christian nationalists trying to take over school boards. And he says, well, why are you opposed to that? You know, we, that, that this, and we got to, you know, it wasn't an argument, but it was like, I wanted to wrestle with the idea that the best way to deal with their disagreement with what was being taught into schools, taught in schools is to take over school boards. And he said, well, I think parents know better than teachers. And I said, you wouldn't say that's a profession. You wouldn't say that about your accountant. No. And I said, what I hear in that, and this goes back to social conditioning, which is, I don't want you brainwashing my kids. That's my job. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. to tell them what the world is, yes. often at our own benefit, so we're yeah. not embarrassed or 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 embarrassed or um, uh, you know, expending resources on their whatever their decisions were. And I think a lot of that starts with kids, and I think it comes back to you can see this very clear divide between kids that were told to question everything mm-hmm. and kids that were told to have all the answers. Yes, and I think that's a. I think that's the number one source of social conditioning. You can look at it between there's some element of Christian nationalism, white supremacy, and kind of like consumer consumerist capitalism. You know, mm-hmm. and I and I and it be, those are very influential on on that hologram that we create, especially as Americans, about what we think reality is. Yeah, um, and then and then a final thought on that because I would love to hear your your counter your take on this is. Then we measure intelligence by someone's ability to stay, to be successful within a system. Yes. yes. And how fucking sad is that? Yeah. It's like, we don't, we, this is why we, we, you know, we talk about sin and failure with the same derision, you know? Uh, and we talk about like, everything's an experiment. Everything's iterative. And that, but that if you are experimenting or if you change your mind or you arrive at a different conclusion, then you're, then you're, 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 you're dumb. You know, you're not, you know what I'm saying? That this you're wrong. Of, you're, you're wrong. wrong. Yeah. You're wrong. And therefore, if you're wrong, then you're dumb because the smart people have the answers because they're the ones at the top of the right. system. Yeah. Anyway, reaction. Yeah. I mean, big old yes. And, and that's, I guess my, you know, sort of just uh, that's it because it's, you know, scarcity, everything you were talking about, you know, we talk about white supremacy, capitalism, dominator culture, patriarchy, all this stuff. It all feels rooted in scarcity, you know, dominion, me or you competition, this or that. And this idea of either, or comes back to, I think, you know, can you be comfortable both knowing and not knowing? Like children's orientation is towards the like wonder and awe in the mystery. And for whatever reason, as we age and then the system as it exists, which is really feels like it's designed to box out the unknown because, you know, like knowing, proving, having the answers as currency. But we like the best scientists in the world know that we science exists as a relationship to explore the mystery, not to have all the answers or prove everything. So, you know, knowing as social currency, knowing as systemic currency, and then like putting yourself above another person. It's like, 
can it be both? Can it be both what we know and we don't know? And back to philosophy, right? Like one of the tenets of philosophy is that epistemology, like what's the nature of knowledge? And I, a lot of times with my clients, I talk about, um, learning, knowing, growing as spiral work, because it's not something that you check a box and complete. It's not something that's done. It's like, if if you approach your life as a place to just like explore and continuously learn and grow, it's going to feel very different than if you're trying to check a bunch of boxes or yeah. amass a number of gold stars or, you know, whatever it might be. Yeah. Yeah. I think I'll, I, I totally hear all of that. And I think that, um, that if you can encourage rigidity of thought um, dogmatism, it just makes people so much easier to control. Or oh manipulate. my God. Yeah. You know? um, and, um, and I think that you, when you, you, we, t- we talk about these things like patriarchy or white supremacy and, and I, I, I'm sure you don't either. I don't use those casually. It's not, you know, I'm, I'm a, I'm a 52 year old straight white Christian ish male. American, you know, so I have American. <laughs> these are my systems, you know, like I think part Don't of tread the, on me. <laughs> yes, right. Uh part of the work of consciousness that I that I do, um, and then, then what we're doing with this new coaching practice that Virginia and I are launching, um, is that once you if you raise your consciousness, it changes your definition of intelligence, and mm-hmm. then it helps you understand that you don't raise your consciousness to sit in a bubble. You raise your consciousness to go out and actually sometimes fuck shit up because that is mm-hmm. what one of the extensions of consciousness. And then what, what I, so when I go back to social conditioning here, I love to ask the question when someone says they believe in something, I say, how did you arrive at that conclusion? And I mean it genuinely. I'm not trying to, you know, manipulate them. I think the other interesting thing here, Rachel, is how, you know, we talk about, patriarchy, white supremacy, Christian nationalism, all that is kind of purveyors of this, but the age of reason and the mm-hmm. age of, of the rational thought that our thoughts create our, you know, that, that we're, that everything is about thought and, um, and that this, and that science is fixed to some extent. And so people use language like, well, you don't believe in climate change. I'm like, no, it's not a belief system. It's a, th- a theory that seems to be pretty clear uh, it could be wrong because that's what science is. It could be wrong, but there's enough data to be like that we should do something. It's not about belief. Right. What a weird word to use when it comes to things related to science. Right. And you just pointed out something really important, which I've been sort of like dancing around. And that was a great example. It's like this pursuit of 100% certainty, like the human the human impetus to like need to know without a doubt. And that takes me right to like existential fear, fear of death, fear of uncertainty, fear of the unknown, fear of the mystery. It's like, if you, if you make friends with that stuff, you know, if you go out to the edges and really explore that stuff and that's where, you know, I was raised very religiously and simultaneous like installation of the dogmatic and of the proving and this like very innate drive to explore and this like autodidact kind of like, you know, thing. So those two wolves living inside me my whole life, you know what I mean? It's like, (laughs) they've both coexisted quite a bit, but um, yeah, I just think that that's, it comes back to like, can we be comfortable with uncertainty? Even if that, you know, it's like you get into upper level math, 
and all of a sudden, you know, things start to change in terms of like, you know, it's yeah. like when we realized Euclidean ge geometry wasn't the end all be all, you get into three dimensions yeah. and everything changes, <laughs> you know. You point out like probably 90% of what Freud said was how the mind worked turned out not to be true. The other 10% was really brilliant, but Jung was far more accurate. And so that's yeah. where you see Jungian psychology yeah. models. And now it's evolved to like uh, internal family systems and the idea that, you know, of, of parts. And the interesting thing about this, and it, it goes kind of loops to social conditioning before we get to our final question is, I too was raised in a religious home in in a time of great upheaval, I was born in, you know, born in 1970 in a time of like great upheaval in the world, in the United States, and then in a very divisive and violent home, religious, violent, um, lack of information, you know, pre-internet, all that, and then also a, um, in, 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 then given, born with these gifts of, you know, being an empath and ADHD and, so when you're when you're in that kind of environment, the social conditioning around intelligence in particular is it, it doesn't really it doesn't stick to you because you didn't you you didn't follow the rules that everybody that made up the rules was following. You were forced to like I don't know about you, but I had to go find out who I was. You know, in a in a in a healthy home, uh, a good good parents one of their number one jobs is to help their kids form a healthy sense of identity. I didn't have that. Yeah. I thought it was a piece of shit and with big dreams and I had to go find out who I was. And I think that's, I think there's a whole bunch of us. So we'd loop back to like the kind of people you work with. There's a whole bunch of us that are like, I got here. I didn't follow the rules, but now what? Yeah. You know, right. I think yeah. there's that. Yeah. Absolutely. So. And it's really interesting, right? Like there's all these lenses through which we can explore the developmental experience, but even if we isolate it religion and we think about um, human development and, you know, the brain as like, you know, uh, safety and neuroception, belonging and learning, there's a beautiful Hopi proverb that says no learning can uh, take place until belonging is established. Well, if your belonging is predicated upon uh, participating in the dogma, not participating in the dogma is unsafe. I can't tell you how many people I've worked with and spoken with who it's like, uninstalling dogma and whether that comes in the form of like how they relate to religion or beliefs, um, more spiritual, more esoteric, more of that, you know, that kind of thing, or how they might even like relate to science and linearity and logic and reason. It's not different. Like it's, it's all about the operating system of the relationship to the structure. The structure keeps me safe. Yes. And I say this, you know, somewhat controversially on purpose is I think um, both religious people and atheists or uh, religious people and scientists are going to be shocked to find out that we're God, you know, like this idea of consciousness and, you know, some source and all that. And I think that that's why, that's why we do have this gift of inquiry. Like we do, we, you know, we're not, we're, we are the only, as far as we know, the only mammals or creatures that can watch their the A have a belief system, B can change it, and C can influence other people's. You know, like that's a what a superpower if it's if it's you. And that's I think that's like back to what I said about consciousness. I think that's the role of consciousness is to learn to use the superpowers of the human brain in a different way. So 
Yeah, absolutely. And that if, if, if I, if you don't mind, if I grab that, that takes me right to like the last question that you wanted to address, because you said brain and I go right to, you know, it's like, well, it's pretty humbling to know that the unconscious actually runs 80 to 90% of the show. And this, this Cartesian divide thing where we, we prioritize both linear rational thought, but also like we have this, you know, one way I think of the ego sometimes is our relationship to our conscious awareness and our thinking mind and Mm -hmm. the body itself as vehicle for consciousness, consciousness, both as something that exists perhaps outside of ourselves and in some sort of field, but then we're interacting with it. And so just like the word intelligence, there's this really, when you say consciousness, I'm like, oh, that's both a what and a how as well, perhaps. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. And I like, I think that's a great jump off to what, you know, what's mis- misunderstood or misperceived about intelligence and, and um, just playing off of, I want to hear more, but playing off what you said about the body is in, 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 in Eastern philosophy or Eastern systems, everything starts in the body. It's bodies, basically body, soul, mind, and mind is the last thing, not the first thing. Um, and you know, we now know that there are brain cells in the stomach and brain cells in the heart and <laughs> brain cells in other parts of the body, um, that there's something to do with the, with the, um, the chakras and the energy fields to do with vibrational, you know, sequences, especially related to sacral energy. Um, and so I think, I think that like heresy almost of saying that the body is intelligent is it's pushing back against 1500 years of mostly religious influence saying that the body is corrupt and, you know, and not intelligent at all. And it's the brain that makes it intelligent. So anyway, what else do you think is misunderstood, misperceived, mis whatever about intelligence? Yeah, you got it. Um, Back to, you know, I got a beef with Descartes for sure. You know, I don't know if he knew what he was doing, but it was uh, a jumping off point. Um, Yeah. I mean, I think, it's really interesting, right? The exceptional, like human exceptionalism that insulates us from our own growth development possibility because of that, like lack of hubris in the face of the unknown, that mind or cognitive based exceptionalism. But we know, we know from a, you know, anatomical physiological perspective that, you know, the unconscious is running most of the show and that the brain is a three-part system that is, you know, safety, uh, belonging and learning all exist together. And that cortical mind and that prefrontal cortex that evolved and came, came on the show last, you know what I mean? So all that to say, like, I'm taken to the idea of mindfulness now, because it's like what we call, we call mindfulness. It's like back to our friend philosophy. Can we step back and say, okay, perhaps there's more intelligence here than I allow myself to engage with on a regular basis? Meaning, you know, so you start by sort of like learning to observe your thoughts, learning to observe your emotions. Interoceptive practices where we learn to observe the body, we're starting to use that beautiful metacognition, uh, which again has that reinforcing sort of uh, idea that it is mind, it is thought. We point this awareness at, you know, the whole system and that's a great first step, but then what? Because, you know, this undoing 1500 years of this ridiculous divide, the body does keep the score. Yes. And 
How do we start to work with that? Start to cultivate, unlearn your meta. Uh, I see oftentimes a lot of people's metacognition acts as a sort of reinforcing um, separator, or like it keeps them in that very sort of mind-based spin. So like, what if we start to point that at the whole body, at the physical sensations, the emotions, the thoughts, the beliefs, and we just create space and create neutrality. But then there's a second step that I feel like is really, really important was like the exploration of one's own perception. Because if the body is intelligent and there's all these ways of engaging with the world around us, what could we discover about ourselves? How could we feel and experience intelligence in ways that aren't necessarily what we've always been conditioned to think (laughs) or believe they are? You know what I mean? I do. Yeah, it's interesting to start in the body. Um, uh, You know, and I think that it's, it's its own kinds of, like, maybe there's a different kind of intelligence for each of the parts. You know, if we were to say we're trichotomous, you know, mind or soul, mind, body, or soul, body, soul, body, mind, or whatever sequencing, each of them have their own kind of intelligence, but there's this collective intelligence of what I would call knowing. So knowing isn't knowledge. Knowing is almost like remembering what you already know mm-hmm. and you can break this down. So it's not super woo into things like the gift of fear um, as, you know, like when you're like, when you have that in that instinct, that something is off and you were right. And I think that's where a lot of people have existential crises now is that their, their, their threat mechanism is peeing off the existential rather than what's real. Mm-hmm. Um, and that leads to all that's leads to anxiety and stress and all kinds of, dis- of issues. Yeah. So if you, if you have this, in, if you have this knowing like, okay. And I, I do this a lot with people and when I'm coaching or I do this with myself and is what is your body saying right now? Cause people say I'm triggered or I'm upset. It's like, for example, if you were really under danger, have someone hold your hand. And if your hand is warm, you are just fine. You mm-hmm. maybe have an anxiety attack and I get that. And those fucking suck. I use, I get them not so much as bad as I used to, but I still do. But if your hands are warm, your body's safe. So, okay. So now is this is the second part of intelligence, which is spiritual intelligence, spiritual knowing, which is wisdom what the Greeks called Sophia and gave it a feminine appropriately, a feminine term of wisdom is this that comes from somewhere and Stephen Pressfield, the, the, the great author and all the way back to, you know, even Einstein talked about intuition comes from someplace that he can't explain. And that that's the, that's the vast unknown is the spiritual intelligence. And then you get into sort of mental intelligence or mind intelligence, which I think is related to the ability to recall, see pattern recognition, um, you know, and, and there does seem to be something related to levels of intelligence when it comes to stuff like that. But none of those are intended to replace body intelligence or soul intelligence. Yeah. Yeah. They work as a system. And I think we box out because of our lack of sort of, because we don't explore philosophically, because we don't step back and sort of ask these kinds of questions, because, you know, it's not safe to do so because, you know, systems want you compliant, right? Um, 
I use this model in my work that is is somewhat similar to what you're talking about, and it's nothing new. It's just like a way to help people explore this. I call it pace. And the idea is you have this physical human experience, you have this affective or emotional experience, you have a cognitive experience, and then the E is the existential experience. And so for a lot of people, like, you know, especially that spiritual, that word spiritual, or you get into the that existential, there's a lot of defense around that for most people, not everybody for a lot of people. So, you know, it's like this idea that the, the nature of things that, that exploration, that, that is like a very human thing. And for people that might box out ideas like the soul, or they can't act, they don't want to go to that place where it's like that spiritual. Nope. It's woo. I'm not, you know, for me, science and spirituality came from the exact same place. It was like curiosity, orientation, towards the unknown. We are humans, we're explorers, right? And so, you know, everything you're saying, I think is just so spot on and, and to encourage people to engage those different realms and to develop a relationship with them in their bodies as a starting point so that p- they can perhaps dismantle, right? And get yeah. into places where they can entertain the idea of like, wow, okay, yeah, I see the pattern between this thing in quantum physics and this esoteric tradition, cool. I don't have to have a take on that, but wow, can that be interesting to me? Yes. And yeah, uh, Virginia, my, my partner um, has a workshop she does called Decolonizing Your Mind. Mm. And, and one of the challenges, because it's all like open forum almost, it's almost like a, it's not just like download sage from the stage. It's like this, it's a contemplative practice. And one of those exercises is make a list of everything you think is true. And where did you, where did it, where did you, how did you arrive at that conclusion? And, yeah. and you can trace it back. And it's not like, oh, these things, these, these systems are all evil and all bad, but they do influence us. Yeah. I don't thought circling back. I have a beef with all philosophers. I think they want that. You know, yeah. people, people say, oh, I don't like Jordan Peterson. It's like, oh, I don't like some of the stuff he says. Or, I, you know, I think Joe Rogan's a philosopher. I don't like everything he says. If you meet, if I meet a philosopher, it's like Buddha said, if you meet someone, they call themselves Buddha, kill them. Yeah. Uh, you know, if I'm somebody, if I have a philosopher that I agree with 100%, it's pretty likely I'm either lazy or being manipulated. Yes. Yes. And so I want to have a little disagreement, a little like that's healthy, normal. Yeah. That's part yeah. of curiosity. <laughs> right. And when you're in a place where you're, you know, you, you said you were talking about the cold hands before, right? It's like, um, this either or in this scarcity survival mode has a basis in the physiological, right? In the right. body, it's like, can we coexist in conflict or in disagreement when we are in survival mode? And I would posit that most Americans and probably most people the world over because of the way we live and how far outside of our nature, the systems that we inhabit are designed to be, that most people are operating from a place of survival mode, fight, flight, fawn, all of these things. Mm-hmm. So dogma uh, as a way to create safety is a very different thing than exploration where we can both be. And we uh, we both have our sort of, I'll call it like right to subjective experience. It even comes down to like, do you value subjective experience? It's not subjective or objective, right or wrong. It's like, here's how I see this. It's like, cool, here's how I see this. Can we explore that together? Again, back to that social currency of needing to be right. But, you know, if, if, I think it starts with building that sort of acceptance of self in that exploration. Yeah. You're you were talking about Virginia's workshop. It's like 
it's not about disproving what you believe to be true. Right. It's about exploring it. Right. And this understanding too, that oppressive systems are sustained by obedience. Yes. And the opposite of obedience is curiosity. Um, Now there are times when you need obedience, like in a combat situation or in a survival situation. Sure. Mm -hmm. And I, I, what you were saying about like, the body's natural fight, flight, freeze, fawn mechanisms being used there. We have, I think there's two issues there and I've talked about this before, so it's not new, but one is like I just said that the, the, the nervous system is triggering off things that aren't real. Right. You know, um, they're not real. They may, the feelings are real, but the thing isn't real. Um, um, and that's true. If you had a cush life and you've never had any struggles that that's not reality. But this is something as a trauma survivor, I say this with sensitivity, how your trauma informed mind sees the world is not real. Yes. yes. Um, And and that's why I always say, where's the trauma now? If that's true, it doesn't mean what it doesn't mean at all that something terrible and and, 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 ingrained itself, engraved itself into your nervous system didn't happen. And then it just means that, you know, there's that that fight, flight, fawn, freeze is triggering off of something that is real. And then the other one here is prosperity, economic prosperity produces the ability to pay for coping mechanisms. Yes. And that is, and, and what I'm seeing with, I talk to people all the time, which is they, they have the means, but the coping mechanisms don't work anymore. It's like the Brooks and Dunn song when the, the whiskey ain't working anymore and whatever <laughs> the whiskey is as the coping mechanism that now there's about to be a come eminence, come up in it. And that's when you're about to meet yourself. When mm-hmm. you can't, when you realize that everything you think is real isn't, and all the coping mechanisms you've had to keep this sort of hologram going are starting to crumble. Mm-hmm. That's why, you know, the truth shall set you free, but first it will fuck you up. Yeah, you know? absolutely. So. I don't know if I mentioned this just as the last, last piece. Um, good friend of mine is like the foremost scholar in this particular theory called uh, the theory of positive disintegration, which basically posits that it's the most natural thing in the world for things to fall apart, to come back together, especially humans. And this precipice you're describing right now, it's like not everybody will come to that in their lifetime, but for the ones that do, there's a choice to walk into the cave and, and there is this like dismantling either by, you know, an external event, um, something tragic or that sort of reckoning of that sort of simultaneity of self in the sense that like all this stuff that's stored here, all this conditioning, all this trauma, my neuroceptive baseline in my body is not able to reconcile and move through the external world anymore. We need to go back in and we need to rework this operating system. And so I I think that really there's so many humans that are, you know, call it waking up, call it coming to that place, call it like, you know, it's like, there's nothing in the external that's going to fix or solve this. This is about coming back into relationship with self. It's like, I'm so stoked that, that this is happening because we need it to happen. I think. Right. And our grand like final thought, our grand premise with what we're doing with massive, um, the new coaching practice that we've started by the time this airs, the website will be live and everything. So I'm, I'm mentioning it now, but um, is the premise that is that in business, there's consciousness is the new thing, you know, before it was like uh, productivity and then it was like emotional intelligence and now it's consciousness. And some of it's sort of, you know, 
like it is in any industry full of hucksters and grifters, but there's an element of it. If you, if somebody, if a business leader has a meditation practice or a spiritual practice, or they go do ayahuasca or shroom, whatever they do to go inward, you, you don't go back to the systems that you have around you and go, oh, I'm just going to keep bumping along. So it's that spiral dynamics of our whole premises is that when you raise your consciousness, you change your relationship with me, with yourself, and which could include your family. And then you're a we. And if you're a business leader, that's your company yep. or your industry. And then everyone. Now you get into massive systemic change. That's the name of our firm, which is around like inequities um, in, in, the, in the world or um, oppressive systems and, you know, taking down... Um, taking down hierarchies of, 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 of abuse or taking down what I call the collective narcissism. I think yeah. they go hand in hand. And I think it's going to come from business leaders. I think that's who, that's who this next wave of people that are really going to ch- advance humanity are going to come from business leaders. So I, we could be completely wrong and <laughs> that I don't think so. So anyway, this was awesome. I knew it would be, um, this seriously could be a three hour podcast, but we're going to keep it to 48 minutes or whatever this is. So thank you so much, Rachel. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me, Justin. This was great.